Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a cloudy autumn afternoon here in the capital is Diana Jarvis. Diana is a journalist at NewsQuest Media Group Limited, the second largest publisher of regional and local newspapers in the United Kingdom. Having possessed a love of writing throughout her life and career, Diana came up with a template for the Young Reporter Scheme and launched it at NewsQuest back in 2008. It today allows students who are aspiring journalists to experience life in the media working for a real newspaper. Um, Diana, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for inviting me onto the programme. It's a real pleasure, Diana, having you alongside me on the airwaves. It's a shame it's certainly not a nicer day for it, but fortunately we're inside, so that's not too much of a problem. Um, normally um, at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle because it has proven, hasn't it, to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself. NewsQuest and specifically the scheme that you're running, the Young Reporter Scheme, to what extent has it affected things for you? Well, it could have affected us quite considerably because we are a scheme that has always gone out to schools and spoken to students. And because of the pandemic and because of the lockdowns, we were unable to do that. So it forced us to change the scheme considerably. Fortunately, we were already an online programme, so we had somewhere to start from. But we had to look at ways in which we could enhance this. And in some ways, I think it's probably better than it was before, because now we are able to reach more schools. In the past, we visited schools and colleges and we ran organised lectures to help students complete the scheme and get a lot more out of it. And it's an eight-month scheme offering students from age 14 to 18 the chance to experience what it's like to work in the media. So we had a very hands-on approach with students. Um, we kind of looked at the pandemic, we thought it's here to stay, so we need to rethink it. So normally we would have the summer off because we work in line with the school's academic timetables, but instead this year we worked through and we rewrote the scheme completely. By doing this, it meant that we could continue to do lecturing through online platforms such as Teams and Zoom, and we could reach students in an open forum. Mm-hmm. Um, it was certainly a bit of a challenge to start with. Um, the first lecture I did... It was done to a school um, who had actually set it up, but it was um, a situation where they had um, set the scheme up, but they hadn't actually um, operated sort of cameras and mics on the team call. And I found that I was talking or lecturing completely to a blank screen, which was really disconcerting. It was also not helped by the fact the computer kept flashing up with messages saying that the connection had been broken. So I had no idea whether for 40 minutes I was talking completely to myself. Mm. But it is a learning curve. Of course, it's a learning curve for all of us. And you do have to sort of think outside the, the, you know, the box, really, and see how you can make things work when everything else is sort of not working well. So, you know, I'm very passionate about the scheme and always have been. So we sort of thought, right, well, let's look at it and see how we can make things different. 
So all you can really do, isn't it, during a time of crisis, try to adapt and try to innovate and try and change your offering and work around the challenges that, of course, you sort of are faced with out of necessity. Um, Thinking of the sort of remote open forum way that you've been doing things, rather than it just being a short term fix, can you sort of like you hinted at just now, see this being something that could be in place for quite some time, simply because even when hopefully there is a vaccine for COVID-19 and the virus is no longer an immediate and present danger, the impact that it's going to have on people's anxieties, it's going to take a while for things to sort of revert to normality and people going back into sort of typical learning settings, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. I think what it has done is, from our point of view, it has probably been um, something that has actually made us relook at the scheme. The scheme has been running for 12 years and very much in the same format year on year. And it, it gave us an opportunity to say, right, let's look at it. And I would say it's enhanced it because in the past, it's me going out and uh, lecturing to uh, different schools. But of course, I do the whole of Greater London, um, Sussex and Essex. And you can only get around to so many schools during that time. A lot of schools missed out on the scheme and didn't get the opportunity to get me in there lecturing. So this way, I can reach everybody because I don't have travelling time. I can speak to students, uh, sort of several lectures during the day, whereas before I could only do possibly one, maybe two. So it has changed from that point of view. And just thinking about the fact that this pandemic has really amplified issues such as mental health and well-being, what is your overall view on the state of those issues across the sort of media industry as a whole at this point in time, in your opinion? Well, I think mental health is, is, is a big, big problem. I think especially amongst young people, their lives have been very much turned upside down. I think a lot of the schools, because they've had to close, it's, it's meant that students are working from home. They don't have the uh, relationship with other students. They don't have after-school activities. And this was one thing where we kind of won, really, in some respects, because so many after-school activities have been cancelled due to the COVID. Um, but because we're an online team, we were able to continue running. And so a lot of schools who have never got involved with before have endorsed this scheme because it gives the students an opportunity to be able to do something outside of school, which is, is different to the norm. It also gives them a chance to speak to a lot more students who they wouldn't necessarily know because we have a student hub on our website where they can all interact with each other. And I think it's really, really important that young people are out there to be able to talk, but also the programme allows them to talk about things that they are passionate about. And this is one way of getting things off the chest. So it, you know, it gives them that chance to be able to talk about what um, what they feel uh, something that is an issue. So I, I do think that the mental health problem is going to be a major problem in this country um, as, as we carry on through this. And obviously none of us know at the moment how long this is going to last. But I feel that by reaching young people and offering them lots of opportunities throughout the eight months that the scheme runs, I can at least give them something outside their home environment. 
And that's incredibly important, isn't it? Because there are so many young people out there that may well be looking anxiously on at the economic situation and what COVID-19 is doing to their employment prospects. And it's easy to get very sort of down over that situation, but it's important to sort of pick up your head and think about the opportunities that are out there because there certainly are going to be some. So it's not necessarily about sort of taking on a defeatist attitude. It's about sort of putting a positive head on and thinking, how can I sort of enhance my skill set and what is it that I really have to offer any prospective employer that's so so important isn't it at this time yes I believe it is I think it's very very important because I think there's a, a very big possibility of students getting into a real downer and not being able to or not have finding a way to get to get out of it and that would always be my concern for any young person but not only for a young person for everybody out there people living on their own exactly the same there are a lot of people there who I think are suffering now, seriously suffering, and are going to be suffering more as we go through the winter months with dark mornings, mm. dark nights, and the cold. And as you're having to sort of deal with quite a difficult crisis like this and get to grips with adapting to a new reality, where is it that you look to sort of for inspiration and motivation when you need it, when you're sort of in kind of a leadership role at the head of the scheme that you're running within NewsQuest? Because leaders in many respects are the ones that are having to step up at the moment and do a lot of the motivating, the inspiring and keeping people reassured. And that can be quite mentally taxing. And sometimes you do need to take a step back and find a little bit of inspiration and motivation of your own too, don't you? Yes, I think you do. I think I'm a very motivated person. I'm a very optimistic person. And I get a lot of um, pleasure out of seeing students uh, fulfill their ambitions. So to me, I'm always looking for outside venues to um, help students to get involved with. In the past, uh, with a scheme before COVID, we offered a lot of activities. So we offered free uh, theatre tickets for students to go and cover theatre productions and then write up about them. We offered tickets to attraction parks and lots of different things that were happening, which, of course, has been a problem with COVID. So mm-hmm. I'm actively looking for lots of things that we can give them to do, which is something maybe they wouldn't think about. Maybe they you know, haven't thought about doing uh, something online, like an online concert or something. So we're constantly looking at outside venues now to keep students motivated and mm-hmm. to, to give them the opportunities that they may not have had if it wasn't for the scheme. And it's important to always think about maybe doing something different and keeping an open mind, isn't it? I'm sure, of course, yourself, you can um, testify um, for that because you've not spent your entire career in the media industry, of course. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Diana, but I believe you also retrained and spent a stint in the uh, the design sector as well, didn't you, for some time and gained some valuable experience yes, I from do. that? I, I retrained at uh, the um, end of the 90s. Mm. I had met up with somebody who was in the design world. I felt I had I knew very well. I had an artistic type of background. I mean, journalism is sort of art of business, if you like. And I decided to retrain and went back to college. I became a university student and retrained as an architect interior designer, which was a huge challenge because I was running a home and mm-hmm. and working full time um, at the time. So yes, I have sort of looked at it outside, but I came back into journalism because it is my love of. I love doing that, and um, I was offered a job and, and came back in and, and um, started working for Newsquare. So, yes, I have had sort of a varied career, if you like, but mm. I think that sort of, you know, moulds you, doesn't it? It makes you who you are, really. 
It does, and it goes to show at the moment that even if you do have to look for alternative opportunities in the short term, that doesn't have to necessarily be the pathway that you remain on throughout your entire career. You can be versatile. You can look to move into different industries, follow your passions. And again, that's such a positive message that is very important to those young generations of emerging leaders and young entrepreneurs out there. I think it, I think it is important. I also think that nobody is set in any particular career. Mm. We can all look outside and think, okay, well, that didn't work out. And I think there's a huge danger when people maybe lose their job and are made redundant and they kind of think their world has ended. But it hasn't necessarily ended at all. They just need to think, right, okay, that didn't work out for me for whatever reason. I now need to look at something else. Mm. And there are so, so many opportunities if people just, take the effort to, to look into those opportunities. And I think that is really, really important because going back to the mental health uh, issue, if you have lost your job and you are at home and you're thinking, you know, this is awful, I don't know what I can do, it, there's a, a real spiral, a downward spiral that people can get into. And it is so, so important that people do think, right, I can get out of this, I need to get out of this to, to help myself. And just thinking about sort of, keeping things positive for the next 12 months just because I am conscious that we are beginning to run short of time on the program Diana um, we know it's going to be a very tricky winter that we're going to have to negotiate first and foremost before we can even think about the long-term future and even then it's difficult to look too far ahead at the moment isn't it because the long term is no longer months and years it's now days weeks and maybe one month at best just given the uncertain landscape that we're finding ourselves in but in an ideal world if we could pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and look ahead maybe 12 months from now, where is it ideally that you would want the Young Reporter scheme to be and what are you really hoping to have achieved by this time next year? I think what it has done is because we've had to change the scheme from what it was and it has opened up other opportunities, my aim is to to make this larger than it is, to offer this opportunity to students across the country, whereas at the moment we are uh, London-based with Essex and Sussex. And I would like to be able to offer that across the country. Um, And it's something that could be done internationally. You know, lots of students have a voice, and we don't necessarily give those students a voice. We don't give them the opportunity to have their say. And by doing what I do and allowing these students onto a real-life youth um, platform, which has an online readership just under 30 million per month it's a great way of giving them that chance to be able to say what's important to them Mm. so i hope to grow the scheme and make it larger than it is and i certainly really hope that that plan does come to fruition uh, diana because it's a fantastic scheme and it's really really worthwhile and provides some fantastic opportunities to youngsters out there to really get a taste of what a competitive industry is actually like and just given how many variables there still are and how the current landscape may well start to take shape i think it would be great to catch up at some point in the next year or so and have you back on the program with us just to see how things are changing in the sort of context of covid and also we can just reassess then just how far the scheme has come in the time between our discussions yes that would be lovely i look forward to that 
I would certainly welcome that as well, Diana. I think it'll be a fantastic opportunity to just review how things are going. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed welcoming you onto the programme and it's been really enlightening hearing you talking about the scheme and what's been going on of late and how you've sort of adapted to meet these challenges. And looking forward now, most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with everything that is still going on in the world because we are not out of the woods with this situation yet. But let us just keep our fingers crossed and be hopeful that we won't be stuck in the rut for too much longer. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Diana Jarvis of NewsQuest Media Group Limited onto today's programme. And I would also like to extend that wish to all of our listeners tuning into today's show. Please do continue to look after yourselves, be considerate of others, because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. Um, Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held numerous senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to Parliament's upper house in August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to catch up with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? 
Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary 
often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels. I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Phillips, does Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.